0: Thanks, Melanie. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you open our hearts to hear your word this evening? In Christ's name, amen. Hello, everybody. It's so nice to see you all here today. Uh, if you're brand new, my name is Aaron and I look after the service. So if you are new and you feel like saying hi to me afterwards, I would love to meet you. Come and say hi. All right, if you could have your Bibles open, if you didn't open for the reading, page 737, we're going to stick closely to the text here. We're looking at Daniel. This is our final sermon, I think, in Daniel before we move back to Matthew. So the passage, right, the story, it's really familiar to us. And its familiarity to us can be a problem. It might mean that we come to it with a fairly one-dimensional view, a simplistic view of the story. It's a bit like David and Goliath, I think. We've heard it so many times, David and Goliath. And we can, we can read David and Goliath and think, well, it's about being brave. Goliath is this metaphor for all our problems, and we should be brave like, Daniel, like David, and we'll be okay. It's, just, you know, it's a fantastic underdog story. Be an overcomer. Be brave like David. So that's a fine message. But it's not the point of David and Goliath and the Goliath story taken into context who are we supposed to identify with in the story of David and Goliath I mean it's not Goliath it's not David it's not David either in that story we're the soldiers we're the soldiers on the sideline who have no hope in the face of an enormous enemy. We're people without hope. We are people who need someone to fight on our behalf for us because we can't win that fight. That's the point of David and Goliath. It's the story of the gospel. It's the same with the lion's den story. It can suffer like the Goliath story from a sort of one-dimensional interpretation. Daniel is great. Be like Daniel. Now, however, uh, I actually think he is held up as somewhat of a model for us, but I think that's only part of the story. I think the main thrust of the story, when you follow the narrative, the main thrust of the story, the climax of the story surrounds this question, will Daniel be saved? Will God save Daniel? That's the central question of the story. So let's get into it. bit of context first. Uh, so as predicted earlier in the story of Daniel, remember the, the, if you're around there was the statue made of lots of different materials and gold and clay and iron and stone and stuff and it, you know, it all broke apart. And it was this sort of word that King Nebuchadnezzar's empire would fall and sure enough it does. In the space of three verses uh, the world is being run now by the Persians. And Darius is in charge. He obviously really likes Daniel. He's promoted to one of the three most powerful men in the empire. And how is Daniel going to go with this? Will he compromise? Remember, the whole book, the book as a whole, is is targeted towards God's people who are in exile. How's Daniel going to do? Like other Israelites who were tempted to give up their faith. Uh, Jerusalem has fallen, obviously. The temple, which they had so much hope in, is rubble. Uh, they're under the thumb of a new ruler. How are they going to live? Are they going to forget God's promise to renew all things, or are they just going to get on with their lives, uh, make the most of it, live for themselves, and assimilate into the Persian culture? It's a very tempting thing to do. It certainly make life easier. And that's our question too. How do we live in our culture? How do we live in a culture committed to pluralism and uh, to many gods and many moralities? And here is where Daniel is really helpful to us in our context today. One of the great things about Daniel as an example to us, as a side theme in Daniel is this, is his wonderful faithfulness. And he was faithful to the end. See, at this point in the story, if you, if you read it and you follow the dates, Daniel's probably like 80 years old at this point. It's remarkable. So at the start of the story, you're thinking, is he going to fail late? Like David, like so many of these other sort of Old Testament giants, no, he doesn't. Verse 4, it says that he was a faithful man. It's a great reminder to us that we never get past the need to be watchful. We never get to the point in our Christian journey where we can just sort of relax and cruise. We must be always watchful for sin creeping into our life. We must be always watchful for selfishness creeping into our heart. We must be always watchful for little idols. Our hearts are idol-making machines. We must be watchful for these things, even late even if it had a good start. Daniel was faithful. And it seems one of the keys to his faithfulness, one of the keys was his prayer life. And we get some really interesting details about Daniel's prayer life in verse 10, if you could sort of slide your eyes over that little part. But first, do you remember what led up to him praying? What led up to Daniel praying? Well, uh, Daniel's doing very well, you remember. However, due to some professional jealousy and probably some racism, some folks wanted to take Daniel down. He was the foreigner. He's described by his conspirators as the exile. right? He's a foreigner doing better than the locals. That's the kind of thing that makes some people angry. It made Daniel a target. And it's a story played out all over the world, isn't it? People who are thinking about their life and thinking it should be better than this. Who do I blame? I'll blame the Immigrant. And there's no shortage of people in North America with that attitude at the moment. But that's an aside. So (laughs) let's move on. (laughs) Uh, I'm an immigrant. (laughs) Why aren't people trying to take me down? I think I'm not successful enough. I take that personally, by the way, that you're not trying to take me out. So these guys look at Daniel, and what do they do? The first thing they try and do is they try and find him committing a crime. Like they try and find him doing something really stupid, and they can't. And the first thing they do is they look for some corruption in him because they assume he's just like them. They assume that he is corrupt, but Daniel's not. He's just brilliant, isn't he? He's living out this Jeremiah 29 principle. I'm not talking about Jeremiah 29, 11 which is, I know the plans I have for you, the plans to prosper and give you a hope, etc., etc., etc. It's all It's the, the lesson though in Jeremiah 29 stuff. Uh, in Jeremiah, God is talking to these people he's sent into exile and they have a couple of great temptations, these people. One temptation is to sort of cut themselves off completely from society. The other temptation is to assimilate totally into that culture. And God says, no. Through Jeremiah, he says, no. God says, be engaged in the city, But keep your identity. That's a great word, isn't it? Be engaged in the city, but keep your identity. Let me read from Jeremiah 29, the lesser known Jeremiah 29. This is about sort of four, five, and six-ish. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses. This is what God's saying to his exiles. Build houses, live in them plant gardens, eat the produce, take wives and sons and daughters and take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage and bear sons and daughters and multiply and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. I'll say it again. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. That's, just, that's fantastic, isn't it? In the New Testament... When Jesus talks about this stuff, he describes, he describes Christians as salt. And salt was not a flavor, it was a preservative. You added salt to things that you thought would go rotten. Let's be salt. This is what Daniel was doing. He was doing the best job he could for that place. He was seeking the welfare of the city. And these other guys, they hated him. They were probably skimming off the taxes they were collecting a little bit for themselves. In verse 2, it talks about that the king suffered no loss. He he hired these three guys so he would suffer no loss. Daniel was doing his best so the king would not get ripped off. So, anyway, these guys. They can't find a crime. Daniel's doing brilliantly. And he's a good and he's an honest man. And so they do something quite clever. They invent a crime, they make a new law. They set Daniel up. They say to the king, "King, you are you are so great. You just are really great. Let's no. Why don't you make a law that says only people can pray to you for one month? And if people break the rule, we throw them to the lions." You can imagine that was a fairly intoxicating idea for a king. Somebody who's already at the top of their game. You wouldn't think he'd go much higher. These guys come and say, hey, why don't we just make you a god for a month? He's like, yes. Yes, that's brilliant. Of course, he loved the idea. And then these, these conspirators, they get, they get this law signed, Saul signed up, and then they go to Daniel's house and they spy on him. And what's he doing? He's praying. And it's a very ironic moment because they think they have found Daniel's weakness. And in fact, the found his greatest strength. So that was all background. It brings us to the prayer, verse 10. The prayer. Remember, we're talking about what is one of Daniel's keys to his faithfulness. How could he be in that city, wanting the best for that city, working hard for that city, praying for that city, but not be completely enculturated by that city? Not take on their gods and their moralities? Not take on their idols. How could he do that? And it was, one of the reasons was prayer. And we have these very interesting details about the prayer. I don't know if you noticed those. The first thing is it says this. Well, it says the first thing Daniel did after the law was signed was he prayed. Isn't that remarkable? Daniel prayed. Assigned the law. Daniel prays. But here's the thing about this. It makes it very clear to us that this wasn't a sudden burst of energy. This wasn't like a burst of spiritual adrenaline. He wasn't thinking, oh, my goodness, I've got to start. This is terrible. I've got to get into my my prayer mode here. No, this was a habit. It says verse 10. It said he'd done this previously. It says he, he did it three times a day. He prayed. So, when the crisis hit, it didn't create a prayer life. That's what it's trying to tell us. When the crisis hit, it didn't create a prayer life. It revealed a disciplined life, it revealed a prayer life. A couple of other things about Daniel's prayer it says he got down on his knees to pray. We do this here at St. John's, don't we? I don't know if you've ever wondered why we do this. It's one of my favorite parts of the whole service, actually. Now, you don't have to kneel when you pray. Daniel did it. We do it as part of our service because it's this physical thing to remind us of a great spiritual truth because we're embodied people. We're, we're physical. We're physical people. It's a physical thing to remind us of a great spiritual truth. Kneeling reminds us of our true position before God and our true position before God is we are, as well as being his sons and daughters and other where in the Bible it talks as God's friend, we are also the servants of God. Christianity is not a democracy, it's a, it's a monarchy. It's, it's, and, and yes, the, 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 it's, it's a throne of grace. We kneel before a throne of grace, which is wonderful, that is true, but the kneeling reminds us that it is still a throne that we come before. One more thing about Daniel's prayer. He prayed with his window open towards Jerusalem. That's, I find that a very interesting detail. Remember, uh, like if Daniel could look out his window with a giant telescope and he could look really, really far out towards the east and let's say he could see Jerusalem, what would he see? He'd see rubble. He'd see a destroyed city. So why did, why did Daniel sort of face the east, river east is? Why did Daniel face east? Well, first, you don't have to face east. Daniel faces east here. Daniel was facing this destroyed city to remind himself of God's great promise to renew all things. Even though things looked really bad, he was going to trust what God had said. Even though it looked like the gods of Babylon and Persia had sort of won, Daniel trusts in God's promises to renew all things. I think that's brilliant. I find this as I've been studying this very encouraging when I think about a city like Vancouver, which is so spiritually foggy. And I think, oh goodness, here we are, this little remnant of weird Christians doing church. Well No God has said He will renew all things. He's gonna renew the whole world. Even a place like Vancouver. Miroslav Volf is a a theologian he's Croatian he's uh, at Yale down in the States he says that humans are teleological creatures tell us it means purpose he says we're made for purpose we're theological creatures and that purpose is tied to the story we believe about the world see without a story we don't have a story for the world, if we don't have a story for ourselves, we're without meaning, or, or it means we're have to. We're forced to create a meaning for ourselves, we're forced to create a purpose, and that, that could be as simple as, make the most of my life, or leave my mark on the world, or look after number one, whatever it is, but Daniel has a better story. He has a better story. As Christians, we have a better story then make the most of your life, then look after number one, then just do my best. We have a better story, and it's tied to God's story. It is God's story. It's God who will keep his promises. He will make all things new, and he invites us into that. That's why Daniel faced East, I think, to remind, us, to remind him of that. Okay, let's keep moving for those little details about the prayer there. Let's keep moving on. We read the rest of the chapter. You know what happens. The conspirators go back to the king with news of Daniel. Daniel's thrown to the lions. He lives. The conspirators die. Children, wives, they die. It's terrible, I know. Um, The Persians did that. (laughs) Darius then tells everyone, you know, that Daniel's God's amazing. Now, if you dig a little bit deeper into the story there and you look at the sort of details, it's, it's again, I know this use this word a lot, interesting, but it is very interesting to me what is focused on in that second half of the story and what is not focused on in the second half of the story. For example, you would think you'd hear about Daniel's time with the lions, right? That's the interesting story. It's with the lions, what's he doing? Is he freaking out? Like how does that, what happens? But we don't. What do we hear about? We hear about the king's sleepless night. We don't hear about Daniel's emotions. We hear about the king's, who's having this really tough time. Isn't that interesting? We hear it's all about the anguish of the king, not so much Daniel's problems. Daniel's in the den. He's in the den. And we hear about the king's rough sleep. Why? Because it's trying to show us how weak the king is. This king, he's weak. So the conspirators, remember, they come to the king and they remind him of the law and he goes, oh yeah, totally, that's a great law, I love that law, it's fantastic, it's the best law ever. And then they spring the whole Daniel thing on him. Daniel broke the law. Verse 14, it says here, Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored until the sun went down to rescue him and no one could make him happy. There was no respite. He was really sad about this. He couldn't, he couldn't save Daniel. He couldn't protect Daniel from the lion's den. And it's all terrifically ironic, isn't it? The law the king signed made him feel like a god but it actually forces him to do something he doesn't want to do. And his sort of attempt to grasp at absolute power ends up he's just a puppet. So we go on and hear about his sleepless night and his fasting and all that. Now, why do we need these details? Again, we have to be very clear about what the passage is trying to communicate to us. That even the most powerful man in the world, Darius, couldn't save Daniel. He was trapped. His hands were tied. Only only God could save Daniel. Only God could rescue Daniel. And he did. And the king wrote this, wrote to everyone he knew, telling them about this. And it's important to remember that these like, miracles we hear about, these are not just naked displays of power. It's not like, oh, God can do a cool thing. Look at the cool thing he did with the animals. No, the, the miracles of the Bible are always signs. They're always trying to tell us something. And in this case, the message is, the God of Daniel saves, and only the God of Daniel saves. And it's wonderful how Darius describes it in verses sort of 26-ish to 27. God of Daniel, he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall never be to the end and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers, he rescues, he works signs and wonders in heaven and earth. He who saved Daniel from the power of the lions. It captures this the story in the shape of Daniel's obedience. There really is a God who is alive and doing stuff. And he will outlast all of the empires and has he will outlast Vancouver. He will outlast the enlightenment he will outlast sort of neo-pluralistic society. He will outlast the West and the East. He will outlast it all. He's the king above all kings. And he's the king, on top of that, who saves people. Who saved us from an eternity without him. This is the gospel, right? This is the gospel. I don't know if you picked up on this and we're almost finished here, but it's not hard to see parallels with the story of Christ. There's a group of conspirators who want a very important person dead. There's a weak king who can't save, Darius, Pilate. There's capital punishment. There's a death sentence, the lion's den, the cross. There's a stone. Did you sketch that detail? There's a stone rolled in front of the den or of the tomb. There's an angel in the tomb, in the den. There's a, there's a miracle. Now, I don't quite know what to do with these parallels, except it seems to shadow Christ's life and his death and his resurrection. And it seems to point to Christ, the ultimate Daniel, who went into the ultimate lion's den for you. This is, this is what Christians believe. So to finish up here, look, to finish up, to finish up. Daniel's big message is not be brave like Daniel, although I want you to be brave. The big, 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 big point is not so much be faithful, although be faithful. When you're attempted to assimilate into the culture around you or to separate too much from it weirdly, not just I don't want to be involved. Remember the better story that we have. There is a God who came to us, who came to us in the lion's den, will come again and renew all things. It's a story of Daniel. There is no hope outside of the God of Daniel. Consider where you're putting your hope. Amen.